Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, as crazy as the world seems sometimes, author Steven Pinker argues our ancestors would most certainly envy us. From life expectancy and standards of health to general prosperity, peace, and happiness, he argues we're better off than they were. The question of whether progress has occurred is not a matter of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses or having a sunny disposition or seeing the glasses half full. It's an empirical hypothesis. And don't get him started on anesthesia. Pinker is a cognitive psychologist and so-called public intellectual. He teaches in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. His latest book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Bill Gates called it his, quote, new favorite book of all time. This event, presented by University Bookstore, took place on March 16th at University Temple United Methodist Church. KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the talk. My name is Joe Garvin, author of Vince Beyer at University Bookstore, and I'd like to first thank you all so much for coming out tonight and supporting your local independent bookstore. Now, on to tonight's guest. Steven Pinker is a Johnstone family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He conducts research on language and cognition, writes for publications such as the New York Times, Time, and The Atlantic, and is the author of 10 books, most recently, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, published last month by Penguin. And with that, please join me in welcoming Steven Pinker. Thank you very much. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with woe? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as imponderable as these questions may seem, many people have confident answers to them. For example, morality is dictated by God and holy scriptures. When everyone obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. Or, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed, punished, and defeated. Or, our tribe should claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. Or, in the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration. We must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Many people are uh, uh, quite clear about what they don't believe, uh, but what do they believe? I suggest that in my book, Enlightenment Now, that there is an alternative system of beliefs and values, namely the ones that we associate with the 18th century Enlightenment. In a nutshell, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them. As a result, they've faded into the background as a kind of bland default or status quo or establishment. Other ideologies have passionate advocates, and I suggest that Enlightenment ideals too need a positive defense and an explicit commitment, and that is what I have tried to do in the book. The Enlightenment, I suggest, 
uh, hinges on four themes, reason, science, humanism, and progress. Let me say a few words about each. It all begins with reason, with the understanding that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion. Faith, revelation, tradition, authority, charisma, mysticism, intuition, parsing of sacred texts are all ways of being wrong. Uh, reason, in contrast, is non-negotiable. As soon as you try to provide reasons why we should trust anything other than reason, as soon as you try to explain why you're right, why other people should believe you, that you're not lying or full of crap, you've lost the argument because you have appealed to reason. To be sure, human beings on their own are not particularly reasonable. Cognitive scientists have shown that we generalize from anecdotes, we reason from stereotypes, we seek evidence that confirms our beliefs while blowing off evidence that disconfirms them, and we're overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. But people are capable of reason if they adopt certain norms, free speech, open criticism and debate, logical analysis, fact-checking, and empirical testing. Which brings me to the second enlightenment ideal, science. Science is based on the conviction that the world is intelligible, that we can seek to understand it by formulating possible explanations and testing them against reality. Science has shown itself to be our most reliable means of understanding the world, including ourselves, a major theme of the Enlightenment was that there can be a, a science of human nature and that beliefs about society are testable just like any other beliefs about the world. Science provides not just technical know-how, but fundamental insights about the human condition. Naturalism. The laws of the universe have no goal or purpose related to human welfare, with the implication that if we want to improve that welfare, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. <clears throat> Entropy. In a closed system, without input of energy, disorder increases. Things fall apart, stuff happens. And that's because there are vastly more ways for things to go wrong than for things to go right. Evolution. Humans are products of a competitive process which selects for reproductive success, not for well-being. As Immanuel Kant, uh, put the point, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be built. Well, speaking of humanity, the third Enlightenment theme is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of human beings and, and other sentient creatures. Well, human flourishing, who could be against that? Well, in fact, this is not a banal or trite value system, there are distinct alternatives to humanism, such as that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe, the nation, the race, the class, or the faith, to obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same, to achieve feats of artistic or martial or heroic greatness, to advance a mystical force, dialectic, a struggle, or pursuit of a utopian or messianic age. Humanism is feasible because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy, an ability to show concern for the welfare of others. And this too was a recurring theme of the Enlightenment thinkers. 
By default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We tend to feel the pain of our genetic relatives, our uh, allies and friends, uh, and cute little furry baby animals. But our circle of sympathy can be expanded through the uh, dynamics of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of people and ideas, including education, journalism, art, mobility, uh, and reason. As soon as I engage in conversation with you, I can't insist that only my interests are special just because I'm me and you're not and hope for you to take me seriously. The very act of engaging in discourse with others uh, militates towards the interchangeability of perspectives. Finally, we come to the ideal of progress that if we apply knowledge and sympathy to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing, we can gradually succeed. You may might ask if human nature doesn't change, how could progress be possible? And an answer from the Enlightenment is that it's possible through benign institutions, which allow us to deploy energy and knowledge to combat entropy, to magnify the better angels of our nature, such as reason and sympathy, while marginalizing our inner demons, our biases, our illusions, our tribalism, our thirst for dominance and vengeance. Examples of institutions that we owe to the Enlightenment include democracy, declarations of rights, markets, organizations of global cooperation, and institutions of truth-seeking, such as academies, scientific societies, uh, free presses, and uh, bookstores. So 250 years later, how did that Enlightenment thing work out? Well, if you ask most intellectuals, the answer is not very well, because I have found that intellectuals hate progress. And intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. <laughs> now, it's not that they hate the fruits of progress, mind you. Most uh, members of the clerisy would rather have their surgery with anesthesia than without it. Uh, it's the idea of progress that rankles the chattering class. If you think that we can solve problems, I have been advised, that means that you have a blind faith and a quasi-religious belief in the outmoded superstition of the false promise of the myth of the onward march of inevitable progress. <laughs> you are a cheerleader for vulgar American can-do-ism with the rah-rah spirit of boardroom ideology, Silicon Valley, and the Chamber of Commerce. You are a practitioner of Whig history, a naive optimist, a Pollyanna, and of course a Pangloss, alluding to the Voltaire character who declared, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Well, as it happens, Pangloss was a pessimist. An optimist believes there can be much better worlds than the one that we've, we see today. But this is irrelevant because the question of whether progress has occurred is not a matter of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses or having a sunny disposition or seeing the glass as half full. It's an empirical hypothesis. Human well-being can be measured. Life, health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure, happiness. If they have increased over time, I submit that is progress. Let's go to the data. Beginning with life, the most uh, precious resource of all. In <clears throat> 1760, on the eve of, and for, indeed for 
uh, most of human history, life expectancy at birth hovered around 30 years. But then with the discovery of vaccination and sanitation, and later of antibiotics and other advances in public health and medicine, life expectancy has increased to 71 years. And virtually no one guesses that it is that high. This is across the globe. Now, as with many uh, um, pathways of human progress, the advance has been highly uneven over the regions of the Earth. Europe was the first continent to escape universal uh, early death and, and uh, suffering, uh, followed by the Americas. In the 20th century, Asia has followed the same trajectory, and more recently, Sub-Saharan Africa is showing the same increase. Indeed, life expectancy in uh, Kenya has increased by about 10 years over the last 10 years, which means that if you are a Kenyan, you have uh, lived your life for 10 years and have not gotten any closer to death. <laughs> for most of human history, the biggest contributor to low uh, life expectancy at birth has been the death of uh, children who are uh, fragile. Even in a country that today we associate with uh, as being the most affluent and um, uh, progressive, Sweden about one-third of children did not live to see their fifth birthday in the 18th century. Uh, that has now fallen to uh, one-third of 1%, namely a hundredfold decline, a process that was then replicated in other continents. I'll show you some representative countries, such as Canada, uh, South Korea, Chile, and here we see Ethiopia showing dramatic declines in child mortality from 25% uh, 40 years ago to 6% today. That is still way too high, but it is uh, continuing to fall. Uh, mothers, too, faced lethal jeopardy when they gave birth. About 1% of Swedish mothers died in childbirth in 1760. That has fallen by a factor of 250. And similar gains have been seen in the United States, in Malaysia, and in Ethiopia. Health. For most of human history, the main proximate cause of early death was infectious disease. That has virtually been eliminated as a cause of death in the, de in the developed world. But in the developing world, there has been fantastic progress just in the last 20 years, where the five major causes of um, death from infectious disease in children have all declined, pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and HIV-AIDS. Sustenance. It takes about uh, 2,500 calories to maintain a, an adult male. Uh, no country managed to grow that much food until the agricultural revolution in Britain starting in the late 18th century with the discovery of the benefits of crop rotation and other uh, discoveries in, in agronomy, later synthetic fertilizers, the mechanization of agriculture, selective breeding of vigorous hybrids, and transportation networks. Uh, <clears throat> England uh, quickly developed the ability to feed itself, as did the United States, France a bit later, and here we see China and India showing uh, spectacular advances in the uh, number of calories they've been able to grow. Here is the graph for the world as a whole just in the last 40 years. Now, this would be a dubious example of progress if all those calories were simply making fat people fatter. 
but in fact, they have uh, um, greatly reduced the rate of undernourishment. In 1947, half of the world was undernourished. As recently as 90, 1970, 35% of the developed world suffered from undernourishment, a rate that has been brought down to below 15%. Again, the progress has been uneven, with Latin America being the first part of the developing world to uh, feed itself, followed by Asia, and now Sub-Saharan Africa has, has been uh, reducing undernourishment. The most extreme form of suffering from insufficient calories, of course, is famine, where there uh, can be massive deaths following uh, crop failures or, um, and uh, disruptions due to uh, warfare or, or corrupt governments. But uh, famine, one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, which could strike any continent and cause massive devastation, has been dramatically reduced. And today, famines are found only in the most remote and war-torn war areas. Prosperity, <clears throat> excuse me. For most of human history, there was little to no uh, economic growth. This graph shows the gross world product from the year one to the present. And as you can see, uh, economic growth was very close to zero until the advent of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, after which it has increased by about 200-fold. Again, the <clears throat> what the economist Angus Deaton calls the great escape from universal wretchedness and poverty was highly uneven. Uh, the UK and US were the first regions to um, escape the background of poverty. In the 20th century, South Korea, which not so long ago was a, a highly impoverished country, has become uh, affluent. Uh, Chile in Latin America, and more recently, China and India have been showing exponential growth. Again, this would be a dubious form of progress if all of these economic gains were simply enriching the proverbial 1%. But in fact, the growth of prosperity has decimated extreme poverty. Uh, if you define extreme poverty by the uh, World Bank criterion of the bare minimum necessary to feed oneself and one's family, uh, by that criterion in 1820, 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. That has been reduced to less than 10%. Uh, indeed, there's been a 75% reduction in extreme poverty just in the last 30 years. And the United Nations has set a goal of eliminating extreme poverty everywhere on Earth by the 2030s. Uh, may we live to see the day. Thanks to the fact that the world's poor are getting richer faster than the rich are getting richer, International inequality has started to decline. It necessarily increased during the Great Escape when from a period in which all countries were poor, a few of them became rich, necessarily opening up a gap that manifests itself as international inequality, but that process is now being reversed. Now, of course, within rich countries, inequality has been notoriously increasing, but that doesn't mean that there is a uh, development in which rich countries have become uh, increasingly indifferent to the poor. In fact, the historical process is uh, the exact opposite. For most of European history, uh, developed countries devoted no more than 1.5% of their gross domestic product to uh, helping the poor, the sick, the aged, and the uh, and children. But starting in the 20th century, every 
rich country started to redistribute massive amounts of its wealth to, um, in, in social spending for the worse off, and today the median among OECD countries of social transfers is 22%. Thanks to the, these social transfers, even while inequality has increased, poverty has decreased. In 1960, poverty, when measured by disposable income, that is, income after taxes and transfers, was at about 32%. That has fallen uh, now to less than 7%. And when poverty is measured in terms of consumption, the food and clothing and shelter that people can afford to buy, it's decreased from 30% in 1960 to just 3% today. Peace. For most of human history, the natural state of relations between countries was war, and peace was a mere brief interlude between wars. You can see this in a graph that plots the percentage of years that the great powers of an era, the 800-pound gorillas, who could project military force beyond their borders, uh, were at each other's throats in great power wars. And what the graph shows is that uh, 400 years ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other, and today they're virtually never at war with each other. The last great power war pitted the United States against China in 1953, um, 65 years ago. If we zoom in on the 20th century, we do see that Despite this, uh, this uh, development of fewer wars, two of the wars that did occur were unimaginably destructive, World War I and World War II. And after World War II, it might have been reasonable to think that this was just the beginning of an increasing series and that uh, soon enough there would be a third world war pitting the United States and the Soviet Union against each other with nuclear weapons, which would have been even more horrific than World War II. But as we, these are predictions that many of us grew up with. But as we now know, the Soviet Union went out of existence, the Cold War ended, and World War III never happened. If we now zoom in on the period after the Second World War, uh, we see that there's been a um, uneven uh, but unmistakable decline in the rate of death from all wars, including civil wars, from about 22 war deaths per 100,000 per year in the uh, early 1950s to about 10 during the era of the Vietnam War to about 5 during the era of the Iran-Iraq War to about 1.2 today. Uh, the last little blip that you see in the graph shows the um, the uh, deaths from the Syrian civil war, the worst civil war in a, uh, sorry, the worst war of any kind in a generation. But uh, what the graph shows is that in the past there were wars comparable to the Syrian civil war, um, but many of them going on at once with much higher rates of uh, death across the globe. This reduction in war has a number of causes, including the spread of democracy, of uh, commercial interconnections between countries with peacekeeping forces from the United Nations and uh, international laws and norms against conquest and resolving disputes through war and probably an increased valuation of human life that makes it less likely that leaders will uh, send their uh, sons into battle as cannon fodder. Freedom and rights, though we're, we're all very aware of the, uh, of the uh, horrifying backsliding 
uh, away from democracy and rights in countries like Russia and Turkey and Venezuela, the overwhelming trend over the past two centuries has been uh, away from autocracy and toward democracy, as this uh, index indicates. In uh, 200 years ago, the number of democracies in the world could be counted on one hand and embraced about 1% of the population. Today, about two-thirds of the world's countries are more democratic than autocratic, embracing about two-thirds of the world's population. Uh, those of us who were students in the 1970s might remember that that was an era that had only 31 democracies. Half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain and ruled by uh, communist totalitarian dictatorships. Spain and Portugal were literally fascist dictatorships. Greece was under the control of a military junta, as was most of Latin America, pejoratively called banana republics in, in the day. South Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, all controlled by military governments, all of them democracies today. Uh, in 1989, the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the number of democracies had risen to 52. The start of the Obama presidency, it had written, the number had risen to 87. By the end of the Obama uh, presidency, the number had risen to 103, uh, embracing uh, more than half of the world's population. The power of governments to brutalize their citizens is also being curtailed. A prominent example is the death penalty, which countries used to administer profligately for uh, minor crimes like poaching and shoplifting, often in grisly torture executions, like uh, disemboweling or breaking on the wheel. But starting in the, with the Enlightenment, countries began to abolish capital punishment, and in the 20th century, that trickle has grown into a flood, where uh, in recent years, three countries per year have abolished capital punishment. And if current trends continue, capital punishment will vanish from the face of the earth by uh, the year 2026, joining other um, abolished practices such as human sacrifice and um, legalized slavery. At the same time, again, despite uh, conspicuous backsliding in some countries like uh, Russia and certain African nations, the overall trend has been to, to decriminalize homosexuality. Child labor. In 1850, about one third of English children were set to work in farms and factories. Because of the rise of affluence, a premium placed on education in modern economies, and a general valuation of the lives of children, child labor has been uh, virtually eliminated in England and the United States, a similar trajectory in Italy. And these graphs show that the world as a whole is making progress at eliminating child labor, which has fallen from about 30% of children in 1950 to 10% today. Three years ago, the Nobel Peace Prize went to Kailash Satyarthi for his efforts in uh, helping to reduce child labor. Uh, you may not have heard of him because he won the prize in the same year as Malala Yousafzai, who uh, attracted all of the attention. Violent crime. In pretty much any region of the world that exists in a state of anarchy, there are high rates of interpersonal violence. In medieval Europe, for example, in the year 1300, the homicide rate was uh, about 35 per 100,000 per year. With the consolidation of centralized kingdoms across the medieval patchwork of fiefs, uh, the Netherlands and England brought their homicide rate down eventually to one per 100,000 per year, namely a 35-fold decline. 
Similar process took place later in Italy. And that history is uh, pretty much repeated in any part of the world in which anarchic frontier regions are brought under the control of the uh, law, resulting in the replacement of uh, the code of vendetta and revenge and feuding by the rule of law. It happened in colonial New England in the uh, 18th century. It happened in the American Wild West when the, when the sheriffs came to town in the 19th century. And even regions that have high rates of violent crime today, such as Mexico, have actually seen a five-fold reduction since uh, over the past century. Uh, if we zoom in on the last 50 years, we see that the United States, which underwent a, an explosion in its crime rate in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, has since then managed to bring the rate of homicide down by more than half. And indeed, the world as a whole has seen about a 30% reduction in its rate of homicide uh, over the last um, uh, 20 years. And there is a credible plan to reduce the global rate of homicide by 50% over the next three decades. It's not just homicide that has been in decline, but domestic violence, such as uh, violence against wives and girlfriends. Rape and sexual assault has come down by about 75% since they were first uh, measured in the 1970s. Uh, children are less likely to be violently victimized at, uh, in, at school, and they're less likely to be victims of physical abuse and sexual abuse by caregivers. Indeed, we've become safer in just about every way Thanks to improvements in safety technology in automobiles, such as seat, bag, seat belts and airbags, better designed highways, better enforcement of traffic laws and driver's education, you have about a 96% better chance, a 96% reduction in the chances of dying in a car accident over the last century. We are 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk. 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 59% less likely to fall to our deaths, 90% less likely to drown, 92% less likely to die by fire. Fire departments are putting themselves out of business. 92% less likely to be uh, asphyxiated, but there is one exception to the trend of increasing safety, and that is the category that is uh, labeled as a poison by solid or liquid, and here you're seeing the American opioid epidemic. At the same time, we're 95% less likely to be killed on the job. Uh, and even the proverbial acts of God, the droughts, floods, wildfires, storms, volcanoes, landslides, meteor strikes, earthquakes, uh, we have become um, uh, safer in the face of these acts of God. Uh, about a 96% reduction, presumably not because God is uh, sending more plagues and scourges our way, but because of more uh, resilient infrastructure, better early warning systems, better emergency responses. Now, what about the quintessential act of God, the, everyone's favorite metaphor for an unpredictable date with death, the literal bolt from the blue, Yes, we are 97% less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> Knowledge. For most uh, uh, human groups, for most of human history, uh, illiteracy was the norm. Even in early modern Europe, no more than 15% of the population could read or write. 
But the Netherlands and England achieved universal literacy by the 20th century, uh, as did Germany, Italy, the United States, um, Chile, and uh, Mexico. Uh, the world as a whole is uh, approaching universal literacy. Today, 80% of the world can read or, or write, and 90% of the world's population under the age of 25. Not just men, but women. In 1750, only six women could read or write for every 10 men who could, and England achieved gender parity by the end of the 19th century. The world as a whole is very, very close to gender parity in literacy, and even the most backward benighted regions, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, have shown uh, dramatic gains. Uh, thank you, Malala. And in perhaps the most incredible, unbelievable, belief-defying example of progress at all, we have been getting smarter. This is true. In a well-documented phenomenon known as the Flynn effect, IQ scores have been increasing by about three points a decade throughout the 20th century, and we are score 30 IQ points higher than our uh, great-grandparents. This is not because the world has embarked on a massive uh, eugenics project, uh, but it is a, a gift of uh, the spread of education, um, of uh, uh, health, and probably of the trickling down of abstract concepts and analytic tools and symbols from uh, domains of expertise like science and technology into everyday life. Well, have any of these gains actually made us better off in terms of the lives that we lead? And the answer is clearly yes. For example, in the 19th century, the average work week in the United States and Western Europe was 62 hours. That has fallen to fewer than 40 hours. Um, that is, we have uh, an average 22 extra hours a week to enjoy ourselves, and most American workers have three weeks of paid vacation, uh, which could not even have been a concept in the uh, 19th century and before. Uh, thanks to the universal penetration of running water and electricity in households, even uh, those of the poor, and the adoption of labor-saving devices like washing machines, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, dishwashers, stoves, and microwaves, the amount of time that we lose to housework, which people rate as the least favorite way to spend their time, has declined by about, uh, from a more than 60 hours a week to uh, fewer than 15 hours a week. That is, uh, from about eight hours a day to two hours a day. And when I say we, I should really say women, since housework uh, has always been highly uh, gendered. In fact, an entire day a week, one-seventh of our lives, a concept, a now obsolete concept called wash day, has been returned to people's lives. Thanks to the shrinking work week and the uh, uh, lessening of the time that we waste in housework, the amount of leisure time has increased by about eight hours a week just since the 1960s. For women, that gain started to level off in the 1990s. Um, this puzzled me until I read the fine print of the article. And it turns out the main reason is that women today spend more time with their children. Uh, in fact, a single working woman today spends more time with her kids than a stay-at-home married mom did in the 1950s. So forget fathers no, father knows best and leave it to Beaver. Uh, we also 
spend less of our paycheck on uh, necessities from 60% uh, a century ago to less than a third today, leaving us with more disposable income to uh, pay for things that we enjoy. Finally, does any of this actually make us any happier? Uh, there's a saying that money can't buy happiness, but that isn't exactly right. Uh, if you look at the relationship between uh, life satisfaction and uh, income of GDP per capita on a logarithmic scale, you see that the richer the country, the happier its people, and within a country, the richer the citizens, the uh, happier they are, suggesting that as countries get richer, as all countries have been doing, their citizens are uh, getting happier. And indeed, in 86% of the countries for which we have longitudinal data, happiness has increased in the last uh, 40 years. Has this come at the expense of the environment? And the answer is clearly yes, but uh, far less than it used to. Um, according to a report card on the state of the environment called the Environmental Performance Index, 178 out of 180 countries have uh, improved in their, the condition of the environment. I'll just show you some data from the United States. Since the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, the American population has increased by 40%. Our GDP has increased by a factor of 2.5. We drive twice as many miles per year but at the same time, we emit 60% uh, less pollution, air pollution. So the belief that's shared by the extreme libertarian right and the extreme green left that we can have economic growth and prosperity or we can protect the environment, but we can't have both, uh, so we have to choose between them, and the two sides differ on which they choose, turns out to be a false trade-off with the uh, combination of regulation of pollution and uh, advances in technology that increase energy efficiency and decrease pollution, we've been able to enjoy the advantages of prosperity and a uh, cleaner air and water. Uh, deforestation in temperate regions has fallen to zero as forests are no longer cleared for farms and abandoned farms are uh, being reclaimed by expanding forests. This is not true in, uh, for tropical forests, which still are uh, alarmingly being cut down, but fortunately the trend is towards less deforestation and the uh, peak was reached in the 1970s and has come dramatically down since then. Since 1970, the world has shipped twice as much oil by sea, but has had 85% fewer oil spills. And uh, the amount of the Earth's surface that's protected against economic exploitation has almost doubled from 8% to 15%. And there's been a, a similar doubling in the amount of the uh, world's oceans that have been protected from economic exploitation, the marine protected areas. So I hope I've convinced you that by just about every measure, the world has shown progress. The question is, how is the fact of human progress, and it is a fact, reflected in the news? Well, here's a graph that shows the results of a, uh, an analysis called uh, sentiment mapping, uh, where the proportion of positive words to negative words is tabulated over time. And um, what the graph shows is that since the 1940s, in an era in which we've gotten uh, richer and safer and more peaceable and longer-lived, the New York Times has been getting more and more morose. It's, 
It's not just the New York Times. A sample of the world's broadcasts show uh, a, a similar trend toward uh, gloomier and gloomier reporting. So why do people deny progress? One answer comes in part from cognitive psychology. According to uh, Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman, and other cognitive psychologists, we, the human mind tends to estimate probability and risk via a shortcut that they call the availability heuristic. Namely, the more easily you can imagine an example from memory, the more likely you think that kind of event is. So for example, people think that tornadoes kill more people than asthma attacks, whereas the, in, in reality, it's vastly the other way around. And that's because tornadoes are televised, asthma attacks, not so much. Now, if indeed the uh, nature of the news is bound to feed the availability heuristic, because news is about stuff that happens, not stuff that doesn't happen. You never see a journalist uh, saying, here I am reporting live from a country that has not been at war for 40 years, or a city that has uh, not been attacked by terrorists today. Also, news is about sudden events, not gradual changes. And a lot of damage can be done uh, all at once, but good things aren't built in a day. Uh, the economist Max Roser has noted that the Papers could have run the headline, 138,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. But they never ran that headline because there was never a particular Thursday in October in which it all happened at once. Um, in, in addition, there is something of a ethic of, uh, uh, of the negative in choice of news stories, as satirized by The Onion with, in their headline, CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for the rest of the day. <laughs> Kicking around ideas ranging from an uptick in child kidnappings to a new link between laptops and cancer, senior CNN staffers held their regular daily meeting. Well, if you combine the availability heuristic with some of the habits of journalism, you can easily get the impression that the world is getting more dangerous and always has been. There's a, another psychological bias that makes us um, gloomier than the evidence might indicate, and that has been called the negativity bias, that psychologically, bad is stronger than good. We dread losses more than we anticipate uh, gains. We dwell on bad events more than on good events. Uh, particularly recent bad events, with the passage of time, the negative emotional coloring of memories tends to fade. Uh, explaining an old observation by Franklin Pierce Adams that nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. <laughs> this opens up a kind of market for prophets and doomsayers and curmudgeons to remind people of uh, hazards that they may have overlooked. And indeed, we accord great moral respect to pessimists. Pessimism sounds uh, serious. Um, optimism sounds frivolous. As uh, one writer said, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> There's also a certain status competition uh, among elites. Society is divided into professional guilds with different responsibilities for making the society run to uh, to denounce the state of society, to complain about how everything is in a mess and getting worse and worse, is a backhanded way of uh, disparaging your professional rivals. It's a way for academics to look down on business people and business people to look down on politicians and uh, 
uh, political challengers to look down on incumbents and so on. As Thomas Hobbes said in the 17th century, competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. Let me conclude now with th three questions about progress and enlightenment. A frequently asked question uh, about progress is, isn't it good to be pessimistic, to rake the muck and afflict the comfortable and speak truth to power, there, uh, lest we become too complacent about the state of the world? And, um, but I, I, uh, I say no. Um, <laughs> it's good to be accurate, to be, certainly to be aware of suffering and injustice where they occur, but also to be aware of how they can be reduced. There are dangers to thoughtless pessimism, such as fatalism. Why throw money down a rat hole? Why throw uh, good money after bad? Why waste time on a hopeless cause? Indeed, if you think that we're doomed, that the planet is cooked, that uh, if nuclear weapons don't get us, then runaway robots uh, will, then the rational response is, well, let's enjoy life while we can. Eat, drink, and be, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Another danger of thoughtless pessimism is radicalism. If you think that the uh, society is just racked with, with carnage, with um, deterioration and decadence and decline, that every in institution is failing and uh, beyond any possible uh, remediation, then the uh, obvious response is to smash the, ma the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground because anything that rises out of the ashes would be better than what we have now, or to uh, empower a, uh, an aspiring politician who promises only I can fix it. <laughs> a second question about progress, is progress inevitable? Of course not. Uh, progress does not mean that everything gets better for everyone everywhere all the time. That would be magic, and progress is not magic. Progress is problem solving, using knowledge to make us better off. Problems are inevitable, and solutions create new problems which have to be uh, solved in their turn. Also, it's always possible for the world to be blindsided by nasty surprises, and I've mentioned a number of them. The world wars, the 1960s crime boom, AIDS in Africa, and the opioid epidemic. And we face severe global challenges that are not solved. Foremost among them are uh, climate change and nuclear weapons. But even faced with these problems, uh, I believe that we can treat them as problems that are as yet unsolved, uh, rather than apocalypses in waiting. To deal with climate change, we have to pursue decarbonization via a combination of policy, such as carbon pricing, and a low, zero, and eventually negative carbon technologies. Uh, we must pursue denuclearization via international stability that makes um, nuclear weapons uh, unnecessary and recognized as uh, more trouble than they're worth, and uh, programs in arms reduction. Just a couple of hints that these are not romantic utopian dreams. Um, the world has already uh, begun to move in those directions. This graph shows the amount of carbon dioxide that economies emit to achieve a, a unit of wealth, a dollar of GDP. So here we have England showing that with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, um, carbon emissions 
uh, went way up as coal was burned to uh, capture energy. But then in a transition from coal to oil to natural gas to uh, renewals, renewables and nuclear, the amount of CO2 emitted went into decline. This has also happened in the United States, in uh, China, in India, and in the uh, world as a whole. Now, this is nowhere close to what we need to do to avert the risk of uh, damaging climate change. Those graphs have to be brought down to zero, but, uh, and they're very far from zero, but nonetheless, they show that modern economies are not irrevocably tied to flaming carbon. And few people, uh, although many people can be reminded that uh, no nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki in, uh, more than 70 years ago. Despite predictions that nuclear war was inevitable, a nuclear taboo has grown up so that even the smaller tactical nuclear weapons have never been used in battle. Um, fewer people are aware that the world's nuclear arsenal has been reduced by about 85% since the height of the Cold War. And indeed, about 10% of American electricity is generated from uh, fuel taken from um, dismantled nuclear weapons. More generally, progress is not some mystical force that carries us ever upward, but it depends on embracing the ideals of the Enlightenment, uh, namely applying reason and science to enhance human flourishing. If we continue to dedicate ourselves to those ideals, then uh, it is reasonable to expect future progress. And uh, if we don't, then uh, it, it's not so uh, clear. Final question. Does the Enlightenment go against human nature? Um, as some uh, defenders of religion claim that humanism is a great idea, but people will never uh, accept it. It's too arid or tepid or flattened. So is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? Do people need to believe in, in miracles, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, secular liberal democracies are the happiest and healthiest places on earth, probably in the history of our species, and they're the top destination of people who vote with their feet. Also. Um, I would say that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, and I dare say uh, spiritual. Because this is a hero story that is not a myth. Uh, heroic myths are fictions, but this one is true. True to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth that we can have. Also, it's a hero story that belongs not just to one tribe, but to all of humanity to anyone with the power of reason and the uh, drive to persist in its being. Because it depends only on the convictions that life is better than death, health is better than sickness, abundance is better than want, freedom is better than coercion, happiness is better than suffering, and knowledge is better than superstition and ignorance. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have a microphone set up for questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Panker. 
Um, I'm sure you're aware of work by uh, professors such as Robert Putnam and others who've done work on, and for lack of a better word, let's just call it trust. I know I'm very careful about mentioning Fuku, uh, Francis Fukuyama on, on his book. Um, what role do pro-social institutions play in the humanism that you're describing and, and their importance? Of course, with Putnam, as we've seen, the decline in participation in those pro-social institutions notably in the United States, since the 1950s till now. Yes, there has been uh, a, a worrying decline in uh, social trust, the kind of um, uh, indescribable common knowledge that uh, people are, not everyone else is out to screw you, but you can, uh, you can trust them, which we know contributes to a number of measures of societal well-being. Um, and in... Um, trust in institutions, which has fallen since its high watermark in the 1960s. An important fact about uh, trust in institutions that is seldom me uh, mentioned is that the decline since the 1960s doesn't mean that it's declined since the, uh, uh, throughout the, the 20th and 21st century. The 60s were was kind of a peak, and periods prior to the 60s also had low trust in, in institutions. But um, there, there is a... Uh, a withdrawal from social institutions, uh, community organizations, bowling leagues, um, religious institutions, service organizations, that uh, probably has uh, consequences that are, um, are uh, lamentable, um, including decreased participation in elections. Um, uh, on the other hand, there has been increases in other forms of uh, volunteering and activism, including ones that are organized online. And it is, I think, a challenge of um, modern Western democracies, but particularly the United States, um, to engage people in um, institutions that bring them together, that um, uh, encourage social en engagement, even with the much greater individual freedom that we've enjoyed and that probably was a contributor to the decline in uh, participation in institutions. So an unsolved problem. Uh, I, I'm interested in if you have read uh, Rodney Stark, particularly his book, How the West Won. And what he, the book was called? Uh, Rodney, Stark was at, Rodney Stark was at the University of Washington for 32 years and one of his books is called How the West Won. How the and, West Won. Yeah. Yeah, no, I have not read that. And he uh, agrees with you about the improvement in science and technology and democracy and economic freedom. But, and he would agree with you that the Enlightenment is an important contributor to this, but then he would say that the bigger contributor is Christianity as influenced by the Enlightenment, as influenced by Judaism. And your examples seem to take the worst of Christianity and compare it with the best of the Enlightenment and ignore that, in a sense, Hitler, Stalin, Mao are part of the Enlightenment uh, intellectual uh, yeah. tree. Yeah, uh, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao were, were uh, not part of the Enlightenment by any reasonable no, definition of the Enlightenment. No, more. Yeah. The, uh, Hitler was a, influenced by um, vehement counter-enlightenment figures who denounced the Enlightenment. They detested the Enlightenment. Um, and indeed, in the, um, I distinguish sharply between the West and the Enlightenment, because the West has always been ambivalent about the Enlightenment. Uh, there, no sooner did the Enlightenment unfold than, than that there were counter-enlightenment forces of uh, nationalism, tribalism, blood and soil, uh, romantic militarism, um, and uh, 
uh, reactionary forces that looked back to a golden age, religious forces, particularly from uh, Catholicism and the more conservative branches of uh, Protestantism that explicitly fought back against the Enlightenment. They hated the Enlightenment. Uh, they spoke, uh, denounced uh, developments such as the abolition of capital punishment and torture. They were skeptical of uh, democracy. Uh, most of uh, pre-Enlightenment Christianity was dead set against markets again, and improvements in technology. Anything that would allow one uh, tradesman or entrepreneur to increase uh, efficiency, such as working longer hours or developing more efficient techniques was considered to be kind of cheating and unfair. So I, I think I've, I'm, a, I'm aware that many people try to credit the, uh, uh, the Enlightenment with, um, or, uh, with Christianity, but I think it's, it's highly anachronistic. Christianity was dominant in Europe for centuries without an Enlightenment happening, and there was a vehement pushback from many seconds, uh, and, and to a large extent still is. The forces that are pushing back against the scientific understanding of, uh, of the world and the human condition are very often Christian forces. Uh, evangelical Christianity, which denies uh, the fact of evolution, for example. Uh, as for um, uh, Stalin and Mao, they were influenced by a... Um, no, you can, I think it's, it, can, it, it can be um, a matter of semantics whether uh, they were um, considered to be products of the Enlightenment simply because they occurred after the Enlightenment. But really, they, uh, these were not the, uh, the, the inspiration was not you know, Adam Smith and John Locke and David Hume and Spinoza and uh, Voltaire and Immanuel Kant, but rather Marx and Hegel who had the kind of mystical, inexorable, historical dialectic as uh, propelling progress rather than the uh, solving of problems through empirical testing and the possibility of falsification and universal human rights. So um, uh, although I'm aware of the attempt to retroactively uh, have Christianity take credit for the Enlightenment, I don't think that the historical facts support that. All right, I'd contend. I have to say I'm enjoying uh, listening to you in this church. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing against church. Churches are beautiful. I have I nothing I, against churches. I think I'm, I'm processing everything you've been saying tonight, and I, it, it brings up some hopes that I have for, for humans and for our role in the larger ecology. And I, I have hopes that we'll figure out a way to partner with each other more than we have, and I admire religions for their ability to affect that, um, except I'm not religious myself, and so I feel a little bit left out of that phenomenon. But I feel some hope with what you say that maybe there's a possibility that as what you call humanists, we might achieve some sort of coexistence, maybe you might call it a superorganism or a cooperative um, hive arrangement. Do you have any, do you have any hopes of your own that that you might share in that regard? Yes, well, certainly I, I, I share the hope that um, religions themselves um, continue the process by which at least many of them have been influenced by the Enlightenment and humanism and have um, soft-pedaled the 
Um, Iron Age morality dictated in scriptures, like you know, executing homosexuals. Well, well, we'll just pretend that that isn't there. Uh, or, or executing children who talk back to their parents or people who work on the, on the Sabbath. Uh, well, well that, that's kind of you know, poetic, metaphorical, allegorical. You, kind of, you can kind of spin doctor that away, and, that, yeah, and that's fine. I, I think there's some benign hypocrisy that is highly desirable. Um, <laughs> Uh, likewise, the uh, appeal to uh, supernatural causation, to faith healing, intercessory prayer, a lot of religions have really uh, drifted away from that and have become the kind of institutions that, um, that bring communities together and give them uh, symbolism and um, beauty and rites of passage, feeling of community, and, that, and I, I think that, that's all to the good as long as the uh, archaic features are allowed to fade into the background. Um, and indeed, something of a common purpose, even, even though I, um, uh, I believe that one of the great contributions of the Enlightenment was focusing on the individual as the, the locus of moral concern, because it's the individual who suffers or, or, or flourishes. Um, the, uh, but still, there is a benefit that accrues to individuals when they are a part of a society that, that uh, has social trust, that uh, brings uh, benefits, that what, what uh, uh, the jargon term is positive externalities, that is things that uh, benefit everyone uh, beyond the contributions of individuals. And so a way of, of um, bringing a, a country together in common causes, like I improving human welfare, is, is uh, highly desirable. Now, and in, even though there have been um, somewhat disturbing decreases in social trust in, and, and common cause in the country. At the same time, there has been a, uh, less often noticed, but very powerful, is that globally, there has been an um, uh, increased common moral cause, um, something that many uh, nationalists and defenders of religion insist is impossible. Namely, you could never get people across the globe to uh, agree on any moral purpose without, uh, without, without uh, religion. And since there isn't going to be a global religion, people will never have a universal morality. That turns out to be false. Uh, that beginning with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is, I forget how many articles, but uh, I think they have four, 48 articles. Uh, that's not a lowest common denominator. Um, the UN Millennium Development Goals, the UN Sustainable Development Goals that replace them, there's actually plenty of really substantive goals that the world has um, come to agree on, like it would be really good to eliminate extreme poverty, it would be really good to eliminate war, it would be great to enhance safety, uh, education, women's uh, equality, protection of the environment. Um, there, at the same time as we, we kind of feel fractured in our own country, but globally, there's just, uh, there are a, a, a remarkable number of things that the world agrees on once they sit down together. And I think there is a systematic reason for it. Namely, as, you, as people from diverse backgrounds and ancestries and religions and dogmas and authoritarian beliefs, when you come together and you can't just say, um, the, the, what I want the whole world to agree upon is that uh, Jesus Christ is our savior. Um, that's not going to get you very far with, you know, people from India and Israel and China and, and so on. Or that, say, America is a shining city upon a hill. That's the basis for the global order. Well, you know, other countries aren't going to sign on. So what are you left with when you have to leave behind all of the 
the dogmas, the, belief, the tribal beliefs. Well, you have things like health and life and safety and education and experience and freedom. And that's a lot, things that come about because we are all humans. And all being humans, we have many interests uh, in common that we can reason our way to once we set aside our parochial differences. Thank you. Professor Pinker, thank you, first of all, for doing this important but perhaps unglamorous work of <laughs> defending uh, all that we've done up to this point and defending institutions that exist now as imperfect as, as they may be. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm a for former student. Um, I was in your morality and taboo course uh, oh. in 2007. Um, I got an A-. Uh, <laughs> You can come, come see me afterward for a, a great change. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm a big fan of great inflation. It works well. Um, so I, I sort of had a couple of questions, and perhaps you'll, you'll indulge, given that I earned my A-. minus. Um, my first one is if you looked at um, depression and suicide yeah. um, and how those numbers uh, uh, sort of have grown over time. Yeah. So I have, there, one, one does come across claims that we're living in an epidemic of suicide and depression, which would suggest that we were better off in closed-knit uh, communities with tradition and religion giving meaning to our lives and family ties and so on. But it turns out it, it's not true. Uh, the, uh, there has been an increase in US uh, suicide since its rate since its low point in the late 1990s during the, the Clinton administration. And there has been a, a rise since then. Uh, but American suicide rates were higher in the past. They were higher in the 1930s during the Great Depression. They were higher in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. So even though there are fluctuations in the suicide rate, some of them predictable by uh, economic uh, well-being, the, the so-called misery index of the inflation rate and the unemployment rate, and some of them, even the suicide experts can't really tell you why, why the rates go up or down. Uh, but overall, despite the you often, this is another journalistic gimmick um, that leads people to a irrationally pessimistic view of the world, that if you report only the, if something has, shows fluctuations, and you report all of the, you know, the upticks, and you don't report the declines, then the only thing you read about is some problem getting worse and worse and worse, even though it might be getting actually better or staying the same, but it's only the upticks are, that are reported. And, and that is the, the case for suicide. Not to minimize the fact that suicide rates have been in, increasing for 15 years, probably with some acceleration since the Great Recession, and in particular in parts of the country that have suffered the most uh, economic dislocation. But it is not true that modernity has caused uh, suicide rates to rise. And as best we can tell, that's also true of uh, depression. That um, the, if you don't control for the fact that there has been a massive increase in the uh, mental health establishment with greater outreach, uh, trying to destigmatize um, mental disorders, encourage people to not be ashamed of their depression, which results in more people, more depressed people having their depression treated, which is undoubtedly a good thing, but that can fool you into thinking there's an increase in depression. And in the studies that take repeated measurements over time using a constant yardstick, uh, most of them show that there is, has been no increase in depression. Uh, in other countries, there aren't that many studies that can allow you to 
measure these things with a constant yardstick, but the uh, ones that are, uh, that are well designed and that have large samples don't show a systematic in, uh, increase. Uh, my next part, if I may, um, is uh, if we look back at, say, classical Greece, um, would there be any metric that we went over in, you know, in, in the slides in which they would beat us? Um, and if not, perhaps is there something that, you know, the, the numbers don't capture about a great society? Yeah, well, certainly if you did an average across the society and you threw in the 25% of the population that was enslaved, uh, you know, they'd be sure. worse off in everything. Sure. Yeah, in terms of, put that, um, you know, among, put that population aside. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one, one could maybe make an argument per capita greatness per voting citizen in the Agora, maybe. On the other hand, there are an awful lot of smart people around today. Uh, they can't, um, now that so many discoveries, intellectual discoveries have been made, um, there isn't the kind of virgin territory in which geniuses can make great discoveries. But uh, the fact, our universities are, and, and our think tanks, even many of our best bloggers, show astonishing rates of uh, uh, levels of, of erudition and analysis and sophistication. So uh, we, don't have the, we don't have a Plato, probably, um, but, uh, uh, but I think the overall level of brain power is considerably higher. Hi there. Um, my question is, I was very surprised when you mentioned earlier that intellectuals, I think you said hate progress? Yeah. And then I, I think I live in a bubble of armchair intellectuals who all think that this is, your argument is very good and, and very obviously true. So I'm curious, where are the segments in society or segments of intellectuals who deny this so much? Well, re read some reviews of Enlightenment now. Okay. <laughs> all right, sounds good. Uh, particularly the ones that say, uh, uh, you know, the return of Pangloss and the return of Pollyanna, and uh, so they're, they're a bunch like that. You're right that, that it's uneven across sectors of intellectual life. So it is true that there is more optimism uh, among engineers, I think among many scientists. Uh, I think the humanities are divided. Uh, Postmodernism, critical theory, existentialism are um, are, are all gloomy gusses. I mean, they're, they believe society has been spiraling down for, uh, and will collapse any day now, and they've been saying that since the, uh, the 19th century with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. But, um, so that, at least that, that segment of intellectual life, uh, and it is, among the humanities, highly influential, postmodernism, uh, the Frankfurt School in the, in the social sciences. Um, but but uh, to be sure, there are also sectors of intellectual life that are more in the tradition of the, uh, of, of the Enlightenment. Um, I found, I'm not sure I quite understand this, but there is one sector of intellectual that is most consistently optimistic, and that's the libertarians. Uh, even though, by some measures, we're living in a, in a, a libertarian dystopia, a libertarian hell, 22% of GDP redistributed, uh, environmental regulations that have, uh, that have uh, uh, kept pollutants out of the air. Um, but, uh, so, so you're right that it, it's a complex picture and intellectuals as a, to make the generalization but intellectuals as a whole, admittedly, was a sweeping generalization. Thank you. Uh, 
my name is Leon Garcia. I'm a historian from Mexico City. I've been living in the United States for about uh, 25 years already. Um, uh, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad to have read your books, uh, including Enlightenment Now. It's a great synthesis. Thank I have you. two yeah. questions. Yeah. Uh, in, in Mexico, we see after the collapse of the pre-regime, which was an authoritarian regime called by, by Mario Vargas Llosa as a perfect dictatorship, a retreat of the state from many areas of the economy and now also of public enforcement, law enforcement. So I, I, I would like to know if, uh, if you have any questions, I, I mean, any observations about this trend which is not progressive right now in Mexico, that even though we have a formal democracy, we see an increase in the levels of violence that 2017 actually was uh, uh, what the, the most violent year in about 100 years or so since the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, I don't. I, 2017, I don't, yeah. in, in the rate of murder and yeah. public insecurity in Mexico. And uh, whether you are uh, some observations about the uh, role of the drug war in particular and also of the structural politics in, in, in the region. That's one yeah. question. And the second one is very brief. If you have any observations about the uh, Never Again movement and, the, and, the, uh, and, and in the decrease of levels of violence in the United States, what can never, you tell us about it? Never, never Again? The, yeah, the, the students that are agitating for, oh, for yes, the reform okay. of the gun laws. Yes, right. So a couple of things. I, I don't think it's true that the uh, 2017 had the highest rate in 100 years because the well, rates were much higher in the 1930s than in, in any of the last decades. Right. Since um, the Mexican Revolution, I should have said yes. Yeah. No, no, and not even the political violence of the Mexican Re Revolution, but just the rates of interpersonal violence were higher in the 1930s. But still, that it, Mexico does undoubtedly have a high rate of, uh, uh, of homicide. And indeed, the regions uh, of the world with the highest homicide rates are different from the regions with the highest rate of war deaths. There's kind of a war belt that stretches from Nigeria into the Middle East, through the Middle East into Pakistan, and then there's the homicide belt, which is Mexico uh, into, into Central America, this, the, uh, the, right. the, the Northern Triangle. Um, there is a, a kind of tr trade-off in uh, government between governments that are um, allow too, too much anarchy where the people prey on each other and form gangs and militias and mafias and governments that are uh, so autocratic that they themselves prey on the people. And I've, uh, what, I, what I say in the book is that what we really mean by democracy is not so much that people cast ballots on election day, but it's really a government that finds the optimum amount of uh, violence uh, just enough to prevent people from preying on each other in anarchy without so much that the government preys on the people in uh, tyranny. And a democracy kind of steers a middle course between the violence of tyranny and the violence of anarchy. And indeed, often in regions where an autocratic government suddenly collapses, like in, in uh, Russia in the early 1990s, rates of violence can go through the roof. And sadly, people will then welcome a new autocrat uh, who can just bring the rates of violence down, like, like uh, Vladimir Putin. And I, that hasn't happened in, in Mexico, and I hope that isn't the, the way out. Um, but Mexico and uh, Honduras and El Salvador haven't, uh, although particular, I should, it must be added that particular cities in the Northern Triangle uh, and in Brazil and other high violence state have managed to 
uh, and Colombia have had dramatic declines in homicide, so it is possible. Um, Mexico has had a number of fluctuations in the last six or seven years. Some years there have been dramatic reductions, and then gang violence will, will uh, erupt again. But the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, had a 80% reduction in homicide in just three years. So I think it is in potentially a solvable problem, not an easily solvable one, but with more, uh, with better social services, more intelligent and more efficient um, policing, which of course requires the police themselves not be too corrupt and they themselves not be mafias and gangs. Uh, but, it, but it is a, a solvable problem. And, and as I mentioned, even Mexico, as high as the rate is now, it was higher in the, in, even higher in the 1930s. Uh, the, the, uh, I think the movement by students to turn the tide of uh, gun violence is truly inspiring. It's too early to say how successful it will be. It's conceivable that it will be like the, the civil rights movement or the gay rights movement and, and uh, result in a surprisingly rapid shift in, in attitudes. I wouldn't be shocked, but uh, nor could I prophesy it with confidence. We also hope so. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. One, one, oh, one more. We're, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're uh, out of time, so we can only have one more question. I've just been advised. Okay, I'll be brief. Um, my question is regarding artificial intelligence, uh, not so much the kind of uh, artificial narrow intelligence that is uh, being applied today, but more uh, the kind of artificial super intelligence that is expected to be applied in the near future. Uh, do you see this as just an extension of progress that will benefit humanity, or do you have any uh, concerns like uh, that might be an existential threat or anything like that? Yeah, I have, a, I have a pretty extensive discussion of that in the book, and uh, no, it's not an existential threat. Uh, I think the, the, uh, the arguments, the suggestions that artificial intelligence is more dangerous than nuclear weapons that'll spend the end, spell the end of humankind, uh, I think are wrong. Uh, but, and I explain why in, in, the, uh, uh, in the book. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speaker's Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Stephen Pinker's new book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. University Bookstore presented his talk at University Temple United Methodist Church on March 16th. Thank you to KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon. 